Reading from Exodus. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase. And in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumens and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendant walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was in elementary school, I spent a lot of time at the Rock Hill YMCA. There were two routes from our house to the Y. One went the longer route on a somewhat busy road. The other had the adventure of going through somebody's yard 
along a creek bed where there were crawdads, under shade and was a shorter route. We usually took the shorter route. The only drawback to the shorter route was this house that had two large, loud, and angry-sounding dogs. The leader of our group, by virtue of being a year older and therefore infinitely wiser and worldlier, knew everything, we thought. Carrie would read the encyclopedia in front of the Braves games and could recite whatever he had learned verbatim. He was amazingly good at sports, so we did whatever Carrie said to do. In his confidence, he told us one day how we ought to handle these dogs. His first bit of wisdom was to stand like statues so the dogs would not know we are alive. The next time we came, the dogs came upon us, we did, against our instincts to run, stand still like statues. They came, observed us, smelled, stared, and went back home. Carrie was right. In retrospect, I think the dogs were just tired of our boredom and uninterested and left. We tried the statue strategy a few more times until we and the dogs grew tired of it. So we turned to Carrie for our ne- his next bit of wisdom. They can smell fear, he informed us. So we were to be in control of our bodies and not put off any fear fragrance. If we felt it, we were to keep it bottled up. They were to have no idea that, the dog, that we were afraid of them. If something happened, we were then to become the alpha dog in the environment. We tried that for ten seconds. Then we ran until they could not smell our fear anymore. <laughs> Carrie's brilliance was always in question after that. To me, our fear was rational. And it was beneficial. It allowed us to tap into one of the great benefits of having fear. The fight or flight instinct that gives us extra adrenaline to run faster and harder if we're not thinking we'll win the fight. My guess is if we went back and asked the owner of those dogs if they ever attacked anyone, he'd say no. Most dogs don't. Most Animals don't, but it only takes one, or it only takes hearing about one, or it only takes imagining that one would, and our fears take over. Anticipating this sermon, I listened to some podcasts lately with experts, scientists, philosophers talking about fear. At least two of them referred to saber-toothed tigers as the reason we have this impulse Toward fear. That would make some sense to me if saber toothed tigers were still around. They aren't. And yet our bodies and our minds still respond as though they could pop out of any bush any day. It can't happen. But a house cat jumping out of a bush can startle a similar reaction out of us. 
And it feels rational because what if that cat was going to attack? Or what if it happened to be something more ferocious? Or I've heard about this time when everyone thinks their fears are rational, justifiable. And those who aren't similarly afraid are obviously foolhardy. When Sally and I began talking about taking this pilgrimage to the Holy Land, we were met with many sideways glances. Is it really safe to go there? You're actually going? Aren't you afraid? I never was. And those who went with us will tell you that there was not a moment while we were in Israel that they felt afraid either. The nine days we were there, there was one serious incident we heard about, a stabbing that happened to a police officer. It happened in a part of Jerusalem that our tour guide says he never goes to, he would never take a group to. There's a part of every city in the world that's like that. I don't think Magnolia Mall is part of our city, that part of our city, but while we were in Israel, two people were shot at a hotel in the area near Magnolia Mall. While we were in safely in Israel, eight people were attacked in Myrtle Beach. I'm not suggesting that nothing bad ever happens in Israel. That's clearly not the case. But it's also not the case that it's as dangerous as many people have come to think. It's an irrational fear that keeps many people from going. Irrational to me, not to those who have those fears. Whatever we fear is what we fear. They're our fears and we hold tightly to them because we believe that they must be rational. They must be wise. They must be prudent. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they keep us from doing things that are careless or dangerous. Sometimes they turn us around from going a direction we shouldn't go or or help us to be more aware of our surroundings. But they can also stifle us. They can become obsessions. We can become so sure that there's a threat out there that that's all we think about. And when it's all we think about, we can turn almost anything into evidence that there's a threat out there. It does not make sense to me that a 970,000 pound piece of metal can rise to 35,000 feet and fly up to 9,200 miles. And yet it happens almost every day without incident. The truth is, we should be far, far less afraid of airplane crashes or shark bites or even terrorists than the flu, or plaque building up in our arteries, or developing diabetes. But those are familiar and feel somewhat under our control, so we focus on the other. We don't shudder when we open up a cabinet and see in it processed and and sugar-laden foods, or we look at a stack of fatty meat. We think we can handle them even if the likelihood of their negatively impacting our lives is hundreds, maybe thousands of times more likely than what keeps us up at night. So there's something fear can do. Skew our sense of what's a real threat. We have a hard time coolly 
scientifically determining what is actually a realistic concern. Instead, we let these visceral reactions happen to us and we go as they direct. And people know this about us. And they exploit this in us. There'll be 48 hours of commercials promoting a new special about a chemical that may be in your house and may be killing you at this moment. If you just tune in two days from now, presumably having lived past the chemical's reaction, then they'll tell you what it is. Right after the commercial break. Those commercials, of course, are going to show you the vulnerable woman who was home alone and fortunately had the right security system so she could see who it was about to invade her house when they rang the doorbell. And they're going to tell you about the latest car safety test that proves that this particular vehicle is winning the vehicular safety arms race. Yes, smart people play to our fears and to our ignorance. And it's nothing new. A new king arose over Egypt and he did not know Joseph. There's a chance that means that they never met. But I think what they're trying to tell us in Exodus is that the new king didn't know the story of Joseph. He didn't know how Joseph helped one of the pharaohs before him. He didn't know how Joseph had saved the Egyptians from starvation. He didn't know that Joseph's descendants, the Israelites, who were becoming more plentiful in the land, were related to a man who had done much good for Egypt. I'd like to think that it would matter if he did, but it might not. Sometimes our fears overwhelm us, overwhelm even what we know to be true. In his fear, the new king could well have said, yes, Joseph and his generation were good, and if they were around today, I wouldn't feel so troubled. But these Israelites, this growing population of foreigners, they're different. They're a threat. Whatever his rationale, he did not know Joseph and was clearly afraid that the non-Egyptians might do something to him, to his people. And he persuaded the Egyptians that this was the case. In his fear, the new king came up with policies that were increasingly despicable. First, the Israelites were oppressed and forced into harsh labor. When the Israelites continued to multiply, he commanded that the midwives kill the newborn Hebrew boys. When that didn't work, the Egyptians were told to throw the infants into the Nile. In his fear, the king of Egypt was willing to make humans do inhumane labor, then treat other humans inhumanely because of what he thought was a threat. Fear can lead to unbelievable cruelty and the kind of xenophobia and ethnic bias that are clearly contrary to our faith. And those who think and act that way can become a threat to those who do not. We don't give enough credit to the women of this story, I think. The bravery of the midwives who went against the edict of the king, the bravery of the king's own daughter who went against his command. 
I can't imagine what fear they felt when they decided that they would not obey the order to kill those babies or the pressure they felt from the others who may not have agreed with the Pharaoh but also weren't willing to risk their own lives and reputations to go against him. And yet, there was another kind of fear. A more powerful fear in these women. Fear that motivated the midwives to do what was right. Fear of God. Respect for God. This fear overcame their other fears and inspired cleverness. The Hebrew women are stronger than the Egyptian women. What can we say? The fear inspired strategy. Make a tiny ark and see if it will save the baby. Fear saved lives. Whilst Pharaoh's fears of the other led to death, the women's fear of God led to life. While Pharaoh's fears were intended to decrease the vitality of a group of people he did not know or trust, the women's fear of God protected this same group of people, allowing them to strengthen and carry on. While Pharaoh's fear mushroomed from his imagination of what might happen rather than what was, the women's fear of God took up what was a problem and contributed to what would become a faithful solution. Fear can motivate or it can cripple. It can inspire faithful outcomes or it can engender faithless cruelty. What fear cannot do is act. Only we can do that. Only we can decide between acting as paranoid pharaohs or life-preserving midwives. And some days we'll aim to be one and find ourselves being the other. Fear and those who propagate it are powerful things. What we have to trust is God and His Spirit are even more powerful. May it be so. Amen.